0: My name's Chad Myers. I'm our Adult Discipleship Director. Welcome. Good morning. morning. What's up, 1045? I see you representing. Those of you online, welcome. Glad you are joining us today. Uh, If you're brand new, we're super excited about that. We're gonna do something a little different. We'll have a mic on standby. We'd love for you to stand up. I have some personal questions for you. Just kidding. Some of you are like, oh, got nervous. Hey, this is week two of our series, Image Bearers. And last week, Pastor Trevor did an incredible job talking about the God whose image that we bear. And next week, just a little teaser, we're going to be talking about how to see others as made in the image of God. So today, I have been called upon to talk about what it means that we ourselves are made in God's image. Image. What does it mean that we ourselves are made in God's image? Uh, my wife sent me a text this morning about six thirty. It said this: "Here's my prayer for your sermon, that you would surrender yourself to the guidance of the Holy Spirit and in full confidence and rooted groundedness, speaking shamelessly and letting it flow, trusting that the Holy Spirit will deliver the message that needs to be communicated." What a great prayer! What a great wife! let's join her in that prayer. Heavenly Father, speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Speak through me. You know exactly what we need, and we trust you for it. In Christ's name, amen. One of my favorite movies is a coming-of-age movie called Perks of Being a Wallflower. Now, if you've never seen it, like just just a disclaimer, don't run out and go watch and be like, oh my gosh, that movie didn't make me feel very good. I don't like that guy and I'm never coming back to this church. Let me tell you, it's a sad movie, okay? So I'm just giving you that up front, but the protagonist, Charlie, is the wallflower and they're going through high school, they're trying to figure out who they are with all these other you know, social situations, what's their identity, where do they fit in, all their insecurities, um, all of these coming of age things. And Charlie the wallflower is watching a girl that he deeply cares about. They're great friends, but he cares about her a little bit more than that. And he is watching a girl continue to make destructive choices, relationship after relationship after relationship. He knows that she's better than that, that she's worth more than that, and she just keeps making these choices. And Charlie has befriended uh, an English teacher, and this English teacher is trying to draw Charlie out of himself because he's a wallflower. And one day, after he's just kind of you know, seen this girl that he cares about go through another painful decision, he goes into his English teacher, gets a book, and he says, hey, Mr. Anderson, can I ask you a question? Mr. Anderson says, yeah, you can ask me a question. And he says, why do people choose to date people that aren't good for them? And Mr. Anderson sits back a minute and very thoughtfully and, and calmly, and then he answers a question, and he says, well, Charlie, we accept the love we think we deserve, We accept the love we think we deserve. What kind of love do you think you deserve? What kind of love do you think that you deserve? Maybe you've been in and around the church and most of your life, and you've heard, oh, God is a God of love, and God loves me just as I am, not as I should be, and God has this incredible unfailing love for me, but you've never experienced it. You've never felt it. And what if it's not necessarily that God doesn't love you? And what if it's not that God hasn't tried through his scripture and people and his world? What if it's not that he hasn't tried to show you that he loves you? What if there's a problem in the receiver, in our receiver, in our reception of his love? What if we have this low sense of who we are, and we just don't think that we're worth very much. And so we're the blocker for God's love. Our level of deservability determines our life decisions. Our level of deservability determines our life decisions. Isn't that a good one? Like, woo, doesn't that make you, woo, that's a good one, right? Like, my wife helped me with that one, so like 20% credit to you. I'll take 80. Like, it's a good one. Our level of what we think we deserve, it affects everything. Who we choose for a life partner, how we wanna navigate our college choices, some of you are coming up on that, our careers, whether we're gonna fight for that promotion, whether we think we're able to do something that God has called us to do, it's all centered around this level of deservability. And if we have a low deservability, then our lives are gonna match it. And if we think we're worth nothing, We don't have really anything to offer, and we have a a, a deflated, low sense of self, then our lives will match what we believe about us. And what I would like to say is that God wants to redeem our eyesight. He wants to redeem our eyesight. Last week, Trevor was quoting somebody, and he said this, one of the most important things about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. Well, I would like to offer a counterpoint that I believe is also true. One of the most important things about you is how you think God thinks about you. What do you think that God thinks about you? How does God view you? And what I'd like to talk about today is hopefully a redemption of our view of self. Romans 12, three says this, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, Parenthesis or more lowly, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So, God has given us each this ability to accomplish what He's called us to do, but He also says we have to have a sober view of ourselves. It's interesting that Paul uses the word sober or sobriety because we know the antithesis to that it's being intoxicated, it's not being able to see very clearly. In fact, I remember, I don't know if they do this anymore, I remember in high school. We went out to the parking lot for a little field trip. And on this little field trip, the police officers came, and the police officers brought beer goggles. I don't know if they do this, like I said, but, but what they did was they, they wanted us students to put on these beer goggles and then try to walk on a line on the ground so that they could give us the experience of, hey, this is what it's like to be intoxicated. So, you know, don't drink and drive. That's what they're trying to say to us. So all of us were like, oh, I can walk the straight line, like whatever, like I can put these on. Like all of these guys are like competitive. We're like, dude, I can do this. I totally got this. So, so I got the goggles, I put them on, I'm looking at the line and all you have to do is try to trick your mind, right? Like, you're not actually intoxicated at school. So you're like, I can walk this line. So I've got these goggles, and I'm thinking I'm walking the line. I'm telling myself, you know, don't pay attention to the line. Just try to walk straight. And I'm walking this line 10 or so, 15 feet. And I get off, and I think, oh, man, I've nailed it. I've nailed it. And I take the beer goggles off, and I'm like six feet off. To a T, every single one of us, we couldn't walk the line because we couldn't see straight. And here's what I want to say is that we, because we're born in a world east of Eden, we've developed a cloudy vision of who we really are. Cataracts, if you will. And Christ wants to compassionately cut off our cataracts today and perform some surgery so that we might be able to see God, others, and self more clearly. We often see ourselves as disposable. We see ourselves as disposable. That's something that's gotta be cleaned up. Because uh, from the 1900s to the 2000s in this last century, we have had uh, an increase in mass production because there's been an increase in mass consumption. Just simply the amount of goods that go out for buying and selling has increased uh, beyond measure. So what happens is, we start to get products, and we start to get things that we know it's disposable. I'm going to throw this away. We're not going to keep it, or we're going to get one, and, you know, I'm going to take it back if I don't like it, so I'm just going to dispose it, or in a couple of years, we know we'll have to throw that away and get a new model, such and such. But what we have to realize is that that mindset has actually infiltrated some of the things that we care about the most, like our core relationships, and sometimes we get this idea that, oh, it's disposable. It's disposable. Or maybe I'm disposable and my gifts and my light and my unique skill set that I bring to the table, it really doesn't matter very much. I don't make much of a difference. You see, that's a disposable mentality. If you were to Google it, you might find the words throwaway culture, throwaway society. We start to view everything as it can just be thrown away. Therapist Norman Wright claims that we are raising a generation of people who feel disposable, unworthy, and unloved. In short, the next generation is having an experience of low deservability. We see ourselves as disposable. We see ourselves as degradable. I wonder if some of the choices that we struggle with, if some of the unhelpful and unhealthy coping mechanisms, some of the sins that we often turn to to try to get our needs met isn't because we actually see ourselves as degradable. Like, it's okay, I can be degraded. I'm just a doormat. I'm just a floor mat. And to degrade something or someone is to take their goodness and to use it for lesser purposes. And so maybe that's all we've really known growing up and we just feel like degradable. So why would I expect you to treat me any differently or why would I expect myself to treat me any differently? That's what I see. I'm just worthy to be treated like that. And I think Christ wants to clear those things off. He wants to give us a better eyesight. And in order to do that, we're going to have to see ourselves as God sees us. And I just want to talk about a few points today, and then I want to give the glue that holds these few points together that hopefully gives us a better eyesight of who we really are. And the first one is this. In creation, we have received a received royal identity. We have a received royal identity. The Bible says that God created us and so we have, everything we have is a gift. Everything we have is something that we've received. Genesis 1.26 says it like this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. I don't know if you're like a note taker or a Bible writer or a highlighter, but I would just highlight let us. And then I would highlight rule, rule over, right? Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. This is one of the first instances of Hebrew poetry, Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. It was never meant to rhyme. It was meant to grab your attention through couplets, repetition, and parallelism. So you see this. God created man in his own image. The author's already said that, so he's signaling to you, aha, pay attention. And then he repeats it in the image of God, but he reverses it. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, and then he expounds on it. Male and female, he created them. What he's trying to do is say this. Hey, pay attention. Something's going on here. And the interesting thing is that Hebrew poetry hasn't been used this whole first chapter of Genesis until now. Why? Because mankind, humanity, is meant to be the apex of all creation, the crowning jewel on God's work. And you see this rhythm in the first day, in the second day, in the third day, in the fourth day. And then in the sixth day, you see this abrasive stop to the rhythm and it causes us to pause. Oh, what's the pause? It's because God is creating mankind. And he's creating us in his image and we have a received royal identity and you say, well, why do you say royal? And why do we talk about God as king? In the whole first two chapters of Genesis, there's no mention that God is king and that he's setting up a kingdom. And I would say, well, we have to pay closer attention to the words that are being used. Notice here that he uses the word rule, also be translated reign. Subdue could also be translated have dominion, and that's repeated a few times in the first chapter of Genesis. And we'll get to that in just a second. What does that mean, rule and reign? But look at this he says, let us, he says, let us. Now, oftentimes, we look at this and we think, well, God's one. Who's he talking about? Let us. And then people say, well, he's, he must, this must be an instance of the Trinity. Like, God is talking Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let us make mankind in our own image. Like, that seems to be the simplest explanation. The only problem with that is that Moses would have viewed that as heretical. They viewed God as God is One. Not God is three. That was a development that got revealed as time went on. So Moses wouldn't have thought God is three and one. Moses would have thought God is one. So maybe there's another explanation for let us. Perhaps that explanation is something like this. If you've ever listened to countries that have a current monarch reigning or ruling, let's say uh, like the UK, when they talk, when they address, it's one person talking because they're the queen, but they they would say this. We, we, it's a royal address. It's a royal we. It's a collective pronoun for I, the queen, and the court and the powers that be. We are making this decision. She's the queen, she's the one acting, she's the sole monarch, but she uses we. So most likely what is going on here is God is addressing uh, the heavenly court And he's saying, let us make man in our own image. But he's establishing something. I'm king. I'm king. I'm king over all creation. I'm king of the universe. Every square inch of it is actually mine. It belongs to me. I am the monarch and I am creating humanity in my image so this image has a received royal identity. Don't believe me? I'm gonna do a little persuasion here, okay? Psalm 8, the psalmist gets this. Check this out. This is gonna make some of us uncomfortable because this is some language that we, we don't use a lot in church, but just go with me here. Psalm 8, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, he's reflecting on Genesis 1 and 2, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? human beings that you care for them. I'm thinking about the glory and all of creation and the beauty. What is mankind? And then he says this, yet you've made them a little lower than the angels. Now, angels could probably better be translated God. In Hebrew, it just means a little lower than the divine, referring to God. And you've what? Crowned them with glory and honor. You've what? You've crowned humanity, every person that's ever been made in the history of the world, with glory and honor. You did what? You made them rulers, there it is again, over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. It's an, it's, that's the image of a throne. A ruler sub, subdues things under the ruler's feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's actually how the psalm starts out. Oh, Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth and how it closes. Oh, Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? And in the middle of that, the psalmist is saying, how majestic is God's name? Look at what he did all the way back in creation when I think about the beauty of the stars and the sun and the moon. And and then I ask this question, but what is mankind that you're mindful of us? And this is the answer. You have crowned us with glory and honor. You made us just a little bit lower than yourself, and you have crowned us with what? With glory. God gives humanity his glory. Every person in this room and joining us, we've been given a glory. That makes people uncomfortable because we don't like to talk about that because that's a part of God that we don't often understand. God, I thought you were jealous for your own glory. Aha, yeah, but I've given it. I've made you in the image of God and you participate in the divine nature. You have a glory. We know this to be true. We know this to be true. I just think we're maybe really afraid of its truth. Uh, we have four kids, my wife and I, and many of you know that, uh, but when each child was in the womb, uh, my wife uh, was asking God, God, what, what do we pray for this specific child, this unique image of God? Um, there'll never be another one like them, and we want to help come alongside them and help them flourish, and so with our first child, our oldest now, who's a junior, um, God showed us, like, hey, this is your joy, baby. Pray for joy. She's going to bring joy to people. She's going to bring joy to those she meets. And I will tell you what, those who have interacted with our oldest daughter, coaches and teachers and friends and her friends, they have told us, oh my gosh, she's just so sweet. She brings so much joy. Like Macy Joe, she could fire you and you would say thank you for it. She's just so, such a delight to be around. In fact, she watches some kids, some, some people in the church, some friends we have, she watches their kids and their kids, they love Macy Joe. They do. They see her and the, the, the light in their eyes is like, oh, Macy, because she's, such a, she's so good with kids. She, those kids know that Macy loves me. Macy brings joy. I don't want her to diminish her light. I don't want her to hold back that joy because it may make other people uncomfortable because other people might be struggling and feel small. They need to see that light. Shining our light might actually inspire others to shine their light. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No. Hide it under a bushel? No. Let's do it one more time. Hide it under a bushel? No. 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 In fact, Nelson Mandela said it like this. There is no passion to be found in settling for a life that is less than the one you are capable of living. It does God no honor. To live small lives, for whatever reason. Our other, our one of our other. Kids in this past week of school, she was just crushing it on her quizzes. She's, she's academically inclined and she was crushing it on her math quizzes and our English quizzes. And I was like, Hey, how'd you do? And she's like, Well, I got 100. I was like, Great job. That's awesome. That's really cool. She goes, Yeah, but sometimes I feel bad getting good grades. And I already knew where she was going. And I was like, Well, like, say more. What do you mean about this? And she's like, Well, you know, I get 100 on the quiz. And then some of my friends come up afterwards and they're like, Hey, what'd you get on the quiz? And she's like, oh, I don't know what you get. And they're like, 78. And she's like, oh, okay, good. (laughs) And I'm like, you care about people, so you don't want to make them feel bad. She's like, yeah, I don't want to make them feel bad. I said, I understand that. But I don't want you to keep your light from shining. It actually may inspire and encourage them to pay attention or to work harder. And maybe shoot for that. What they are capable of achieving, maybe they're pushing it down and your life can inspire them. Our son's a little bit different. Like if he got 100 on a quiz, he would write 100 on his paper and he'd like staple it to his shirt and walk around like this. Like, oh, I got 100. What'd you get? Oh, you feel dumb? Not my problem, right? Maybe he needs to put a little bit of boundaries on that, but that's him. We all have a glory, a gift, a genius, but it is a received identity. Let me say this. God is not threatened by making significant creatures. He's just not. He's not threatened by us being big. In fact, he he sets us on stage. He gives us our cue cards. He gives us our role, and he says, action, play your part well. Show them what I gave you. Show it loud for everybody to hear. Shine your light for everybody to see. Don't live small lives. Live big lives. Show that you are deserving because you're a creature who's been made in the image of an infinitely worthy king. The image of God is a received identity, not an achieved identity. These are light years apart and you know the difference. The difference between a received identity is that it's been given in its sheer grace and it can't change. It's a solid rock. And an achieved identity can change like this. It's shifting sand. I can be successful. I can be at the top of my game. I can build wealth and power and all these things. I can be the funny one. I could be the athletic one. I could be whatever. None of these things are bad in and of themselves, but when we make them our identity, they will destroy us because they're too much of a shifting sand, and then we get radically insecure, and then we think we gotta continue to play this part and play this role. No, no, no. A received identity is a secure identity, and God gives it to us in creation, and then he affirms and restores it in redemption, in and through Jesus Christ, dying and resurrecting. He says, you're all creatures, you all bear the image, but that image is broken and I wanna fix that. I wanna adopt you as sons and daughters and I wanna put that image back together. It's a received identity, not an achieved identity. Here in this passage also, we even see that our gender is a part of a received identity. Our gender is a part of received identity. Listen to how he goes about this. He says, male and female, God created them. He doesn't just take this out of the blue. It's actually in rhythm with the whole chapter. There are sets of binaries that are complementary to each other. You see light, and you see dark. You see earth, and you see sky. Then you see land, and then you have sea. I was going to say CC, but, you know, that changed it to have sea what he's saying is, then you have male and you have female, these binaries, these counterparts to each other that complement each other. And what's going on here is that man alone does not show the fullness of the glory of God, and woman alone does not show the fullness of the glory of God. It's men and women all over creation, taken as a whole, that show the fullness of the glory of God. But even here, our gender is a received identity, these binaries, male and female. These are the things that Genesis shows us. And you may say, well, hey, with everything going on in the world today, shouldn't we like nuance this a little bit? And I would say, yes, but we don't nuance gender. We nuance temperament. You say, what do you mean by that? And I would say this, well, I am a man, masculine gender, right? But I tend to have a more feminine temperament. I'm more agreeable. My wife says, do this, and I agree, She's like, that's not true. <laughs> I'm, I tend to be more sensitive. I care about how others feel. I care about the impact upon in my life of theirs. I, I can get easily hurt and my feelings get hurt because I tend to be a more sensitive. Um, you know, I would call this an outfit. <laughs> you should see my dance moves. They're a little bit feminine, you know? So, but that doesn't make me any less of a man. That doesn't make me not a man. And there are women out there who may have a more masculine temperament, but that doesn't make them not a woman. And one of my big concerns today is for our children in this next generation, just all children in this next generation, because there is so much confusion going on around this subject. There is so much confusion going on in the culture today, inside of the schools, and inside of the church, and inside of the home. And and I can't say everything that probably needs to be said, and I'm not prepared to say everything that may need to be said, but I want to say this. I think perhaps in the last decade, well-meaning pop psychologists have said something like this to families. It's damaging to tell your kids no. So don't tell them no. Tell them yes. Now, if you have tried this for the scope of about three minutes... You know that if you just give your kids a yes and indulge everything that they want and everything that they desire, pure chaos chaos is going to break out. And that's not how kids work. Here's how kids work. They feel secure. They actually feel secure when there, is, when there are yeses and there are nos in the house. Kids ask two questions. You didn't know you were coming to a parenting portion of this, did you? Kids ask two main questions. The questions are this. Will you love me no matter what, and can I get my own way? And the answers are this. Yes, I'll love you no matter what because you're my kid. No, you can definitely not get your own way. So my prayer for us as families, grandparents, grandparents, and soon-to-be parents in the years to come, my prayer is this, that we would be sensitive and we would be a safe place for children to open up and be able to share all of the things that they're struggling with, the questions that they have, maybe the confusion that they have. But I also pray that we would have strength to guide them and strength to lead them, to say to them, well, I take my cues from the scripture, and this is how I read it, that God created it this way, and there's a binary, male and female. Let's talk about that. This is a received identity. This is what God gives us. You're like, ooh, that was that was kind of heavy. Yeah, I know. We've been in the deep end for a while, if you haven't felt it. Anybody need a floaty? Or like, you know, I'll throw you a life raft? Like, I get it. We're, we've been in the deep end for a bit. We've been given a royal identity. We have also a received royal reign. We have a received royal reign. It's not just that we have value. It's not just that we have this worth. It's that we were called to be in motion, on movement, on mission. We were called to do something. So, C.S. Lewis wrote a series of stories called The Chronicles of Narnia. He didn't set out to write the whole thing, but after he finished one he just kept writing, kept writing, kept writing. Now if you're not familiar with this series, there are four children, two brothers, two sisters, and they find themselves in a magical wardrobe, and this wardrobe opens up to a whole other dimension and this dimension is called Narnia. It's meant to be Lewis's portrayal of kind of heaven and earth. It's another dimension close by. And they find themselves in Narnia, and Narnia has been invaded by the white witch Jadis, and she makes it winter and never Christmas, and it's just brutal and but they've heard rumors that Aslan is on the move, and Aslan represents the Christ figure, and he's portrayed by a lion. So Aslan comes on the scene a little bit in this movie, in the first one, Lion, Wits, and Wardrobe, but then at the very end, do you know what happens? At the very end, there is a coronation ceremony, and at the coronation ceremony, Aslan does what? He dubs those four children kings and queens of Narnia. Kings and queens of Narnia. King Edmund, King Peter, Queen Susan, Queen Lucy. And then what does he do? He goes away. What is going on? In fact, Aslan seems to not show up when they most want him to and he comes on the scene and then he goes away and then he comes on the scene corrects some things and then he goes away what is happening look at genesis 128 god blessed them and said to them be fruitful and increase in number have children spread out over the earth fill the earth and subdue it or reign over it rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground the theme of genesis is this great king has created the universe and there are several realms He creates three realms in the first three days, sky, land, and sea. Then he creates three rulers over these realms, sun, moon, and stars for the sky, animals for the land, and fish over the sea. And then he creates humanity. Why? Because who's going to rule all of that? Kings and queens of Narnia. We are. And God's going to empower us to rule on his behalf and he's going to give us this royal task of being vice regents to move along his creation, develop it, create culture, create cities, create music, create art, develop this this world and as we do it, do it in a way that models the king's justice and the king's love and the king's mercy. And God's gonna stand back invisible and he wants his goodness and glory to be known through us who are visible. This is the royal task that God gives to us. Image bearers is primarily about a function. It's primarily about a calling. And you see this, like God shows up. Like, it's very much like the Bible. Like, God shows up and then he backs off. And then human, human beings are doing this thing. And then God shows up and then he backs off. And then human beings, and then God steps on the stage and then he backs off, like get, gets the prophets, corrects some things, get King David, like make some things ready, sends Jesus, dies for redemption, and then he goes away. It's like, what are you doing? It's literally like a, life is like a Quentin Tarantino movie, right? It's a Quentin Tarantino movie when he's the director and you know he's the director, but he likes his cameos. Like he's gonna show up and you're like, oh, look, he's this character today. And then they show up a different movie. Oh, he's like that. It's like that. You're like, well, what'd you learn in church today? Like, well, life's like a Quentin Tarantino movie, duh. Everybody knows that. Why is that? Because God has empowered us to be powerful agents on his behalf, to rule and to reign. But it's very different. It's very different from the surrounding cultures at the time. The image of God, Genesis takes that and flips it completely on its head. This is the image of God in the surrounding cultures when Genesis was written. There was a God... And this God had a king, and this God, this king was the Salem, and the Salem was the image of God. Same phrases used in Hebrews 1. And this image of that God was to represent that God and reign over this kingdom, these people. And the more that these people loyally submitted to this king who was in submission to this God, then they spread that kingdom out and they spread that culture out. So you notice it's limited to a king and this king rules over people. Genesis takes this concept and completely flips it on its head. How so? Well, you have God, but now the image of God or the Salem is not limited to one person. It's given to everybody. And you notice that we are not to have dominion over each other, but we have dominion over the non-human world. Think about it like this. We co-create with other image bearers, and we develop the world in such a way that represents the goodness and the reign of this God. And in so doing, we find great fulfillment. We find great purpose and meaning. We live big lives with deservability. We share our glory unashamedly because the king wants us to. He wants us to rule and reign on his behalf, stewarding his presence. Mediators, go-betweens in the world. What would it look like if we did that well. So before we say, we look out at the world today, and we're like, oh, this is such a mess. God, where in the world are you? Or, oh, look at this world, it's such a mess. What a terrible shape it's in. And we look at, we start blaming other people. Well, it's their fault. Like, if only they would change. Before we do any of that, because we've been empowered to be kings and queens on God's behalf, before we do any of that, we have to look in the mirror. Say, how have we played a part in the brokenness today and how can we play a part in the restoration and healing of all the cosmos? That's what Jesus wants us to do. Now, let me close it like this. Let me, let me try to bring the glue that holds this whole thing together. This keeps these two points cohesive. And it is essentially this, that not only if we have an identity and a, a royal reign, but it's in and through a relationship. It's in and through a relationship. It's a received relationship, which means it's grace, that nothing we could do or say could ever earn it, but it's given to us. God wants to be in personal relationship with everybody. God loves people. He made them, and he wants to be in relationship with us. But the human problem that we see in the early chapters of the story, the human problem was a moral fall preceded by a trust fail. So somewhere along the lines, we didn't trust that the king was good. We didn't trust that we could live big, full lives living out the interests of the king and the desires of the king. We didn't trust that we would be satisfied and have purpose, so we wanted to take matters into our own hands. We said, you know what? We're gonna do it our way. And as mankind goes, so goes the world. And we've seen that. Well, let me say this, if God is God, then God can't sin. And if God is God and God can't sin, then he can't sin against you. And if God is God and God can't sin, and God can't sin against you, then God must be the safest, most beautiful, trustworthy person to be in relationship with. Do you know what that takes? That takes surrender. That takes submission. Creatures were created to be dependent, not independent. To be dependent, and that's a good thing. Trust-filled submission to the call of the king makes us effective for the cause of the king. And that's the invitation to all of us, whether you've been a Christian for 30 years, three minutes, or whether you just kind of checking this whole faith thing out. We're never meant to do life on our own, with our own wisdom and our own strengths. We were always meant to rule and reign on someone else's behalf. And we have to come under that reign and rule and submit to King Jesus. And that's hard because it means we die to ego, whether that ego sends us up into the ozone of pride or down into shame. We surrender those things and say, I'm not gonna live for me anymore. I'm gonna invite you to bring out the glory that you've given me at creation, and I'm gonna live out my calling for you. I'm gonna shine my light, shine it bright, and you're gonna get glory from that. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your text. It is rich, it's deep, it's true. Sometimes it's very uncomfortable, but it's healing. It's healing because no matter who we are, no matter how we view life today, we are all called into submission to you. We are all called to say, you know what, I'm gonna die to selfishness to self-interests, and I'm gonna live this life that you've given me in such a way that says, I'm not my own. I've been bought. I've been given a glory at creation. I've messed that up through sin, but Jesus came and he's restoring it, so now I'm gonna live out loud. God, for people here today that they have never experienced, never sensed, never felt that you love them at all because there's so much shame and fear and degradation in their life from something that happened to them or something that they've chosen. I pray that you would break them free today, that they might know and experience and sense what it is to be loved by you. That we are significant creatures. God, I pray that we would be people who make a difference on your behalf, for your sake. You are the living God, but you're invisible. And we're visible. And you want to live in and through us. Do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.